You're listening to Ping, a new podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. Each fortnight, we'll be chatting with internet researchers and operators from around the world about the research they and their colleagues are doing and insights they've gained into the well-being of the internet. For our first episode, we'll be talking to Internet Hall of Famer and APNIC's Chief Scientist, Jeff Houston, about Facebook's recent oops moment, by which I'm referring to the six-hour outage that Facebook sites and Facebook staff wanting to access Facebook offices experienced on the 5th of October, 2021. Jeff, welcome to Ping. <laughs> yeah, hi, Robbie. Look, it's good to be here. And uh, hello, listeners. It, it is... Uh... It's good to kind of come out of typing when my typos are very dense into coming into a world where I can just say things and, you know, the typos are invisible. Um, so, yes, let's talk about Facebook's oops. Now, there has been plenty of commentary surrounding this, including from yourself, Jeff. If you haven't already read Jeff's post, head over to blog.apnic.net after this. But for those who have only been skimming tweets and headlines, can you explain how big of an outage this was? Well, you know, it's funny you'd call it an oops. <laughs> if, you, if you take a metric of how many individual users you've managed to annoy, then if you believe Facebook, they have around 3 billion users. So this little oops is, is oddly enough, the biggest by far single outage the internet's ever experienced. I'm like, wow. The biggest single outage you believe this could be for the whole internet's history. Well, you'd have to turn off the entire internet to get more than 3 billion getting annoyed and being affected. You know, it's just that this one service has been incredibly successful in terms of the number of subscribers. So when it goes out, not just it goes out in the Faroe Islands or, you know, in Australia or something, it went out everywhere. And so, yeah, on, on the scale of, of internet outages, you know, Facebook broke it for a whole bunch of people who use Facebook. And so, like I said, if the scale is the number of people who got slightly annoyed that they couldn't do what normally they just do automatically, then yeah, it's, it's top of the charts. It's 3 billion people. I'm like, that's impressive. So Facebook came out with a fairly vanilla explanation while they were trying to diagnose the situation, which was the focus of your blog post and indirectly your presentation at APNIC 52. You've already pointed out that this situation was more than a regular network outage given the size of Facebook's user base and it caused plenty of financial and logistic pain for many users, which is bad. But for measurement folk and people who are interested in how the internet works, these types of situations can provide a unique opportunity to understand what these issues can mean for the internet and to also look behind the curtain of these private networks to understand why they happened. So this is what we plan on focusing in this episode. Uh, but let's start, Jeff, with understanding what happened with Facebook. Why did it go down? Okay, so very quickly what happened, and then we'll sort of move into the general before we come back to Facebook. They run a distributed network that has a whole bunch of data centres and a whole bunch of interconnections between those data centres. And a bit like losing the keys to your front door, when they lost the keys to get hold of their data centres remotely, they got locked out of their house. They got locked out of Facebook. Now, 
You'd go, well, that's a minor annoyance. I suppose it is too. I'm like, if I lost my keys. But it was subtly worse than that because inside their house was the domain name system that is authoritative for Facebook. And that got locked out too. So now it wasn't just, I can't get into my data center over the internet. The name Facebook is now not visible. Now, again, normally that wouldn't be a problem because the DNS caches, and we'll talk about why, because that's important. But Facebook has decided that they want a dynamic DNS and they don't want caching. So they set the cache timers low so that when the DNS disappeared, because BGP disappeared, because, 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 when the DNS disappeared, it didn't take long for the world to forget that facebook.com is a name. Now, as soon as that happens, there is no facebook.com. It got thrown out of all those caches. And because the data centers weren't online anymore, because, you know, they got locked out and so on, then all of a sudden there was no Facebook. And what made this worse, of course, is in order to fix it, you needed to get to your data centers and fix it. But remember how you lost the keys to the front door? Yeah, right. Uh, And there's even some Twitter reports that not even the front door of their facilities uh, some of the front doors wouldn't open for them. The physical physical doors were closed at Facebook because the system, which was all based on Facebook.com, they couldn't be found. Comprehensively locked out. So let's just sort of start back again as to what is going on. You see, we didn't build the internet to be like that. And one of the almost the seminal research paper was written by a gentleman called Paul Barron when he was RAND, the uh, Research and Development Corporation in California in, I think it was 1962. And he was talking about systems. Now, apocryphally, it's all about nuclear attack, but I don't think it's like that. There is a almost a more academic view of this. Can you design reliable systems from unreliable components? Now, at the time of valves, that was actually a really important conclusion, you know, thought, because if the average life of a valve was, you know, 40 or 50 hours, and you had, geez, a thousand valves in your computer, it would never come up. You know, statistically, there was always a valve that was dead. And so normally, when you build systems out of unreliable components, the system is less reliable than the least reliable component. It's worse, because failure is random. You know, if you have a whole bunch of sort of embed things that could fail at random times, and the system would would collapse because that's the way systems work. But Paul was trying to, in his head, construct an entirely different system. And it's almost the same as a biological system, you and I as humans, that we don't collapse on the least reliable component, we adapt. Yep, so we detour. Well, detour, you know, fix it, self-healing systems. And and I'm not sort of worried too much about how it self-heals at this point, but the whole idea of a system that's clever enough in some ways to understand that things aren't normal right now and autonomously, all by itself, figure out a way around the breakage. And and so if you think about this, and let's just remember those far-off pre-COVID days when, you know, you used to drive your car to work and Work was a little bit away from where you're living and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, there's a roadblock ahead. Now, I have to go back to a world before Google Maps and all those assistants, but if there was, you know, a roadblock ahead and you knew the local neighbourhood, 
you would turn left and head off through the suburbs and find your way around. You adapted. And there was no signs to tell you, you adapted. You're actually able to heal. Now, Paul thought about routing systems and routing protocols and thought about this idea that if I have enough redundancy in the topology, if there are 30 different ways to get from home to work, and each of those 30 ways is different in every respect, they never use the same laneway segment, you know, then there's always a way to get to work, no matter, you know, if one road is blocked or two or three, you'd need 30 roads to be blocked in my little, you know, imaginative case. But you can see that if there's enough information and enough adaptability, you can actually cope with the outage. And did we, did, did we achieve this, like in building the internet? Has this been achieved? Well, let's just talk about BGP for a second, the workhorse of keeping the internet glued together. Oddly enough, the thing that brought Facebook all the way down, ultimately. But BGP is a self-healing protocol. And the way it works is that it tells its neighbours about what it's just learned, good or bad, and their neighbours then process that information and tell their neighbours what it's they've just learned, good or bad. Now, oddly enough, that conversation is a conversation about change. So if my link to Fred goes down, I tell all my neighbours, if you were using me to get to Fred, look, forget that, I can't get to Fred. Find another way, don't send me the packet. And they go, well, that's really cool. I'll use someone else to get to Fred. And one of them nicely says, well, you know, Jeff, if you can't get to Fred, I can. I found a different way. Use me. Brilliant. So when the link between me and Fred goes down because something's unreliable, oddly enough, the network itself self-heals. And there's no one at a desk. There's no engineer with a you know blinking red light. No one has to jump in the little car and make it work again. Sure, they can go out and repair the circuit at some time, but traffic was still flowing. The stuff was still working because the system is adaptive and it had enough redundancy. It needs redundancy. But when it has that redundancy, it could use alternate paths and make it all work together. Now, this actually had some kind of popular internet events uh, which went down in the annals of history over time. And one of them was a, a fire in a Chicago telephone exchange point. Now, in America, the topology is such that there's really only two major trunk circuits from the East Coast to the West Coast. And, you know, one's up north uh, through Chicago, the other one's down south, probably through Dallas. So when the Chicago trunk switch started to, you know, catch fire, a whole lot of telephone calls didn't work. Things were bad. The telephone system basically blew up. The internet didn't even notice to some extent. Routing was still happening. You know, a few routers were down at exchange points in Chicago, but, you know, as long as there's enough redundancy in the entire topology, the internet just routed around this. So two things about making this work. Number one, you need a lot of it. You need enough to have more than you absolutely need. There always has to be a plan B lying there as part of what you built. By a lot of it, you mean redundancy. Redundancy, alternate paths, you know, additional stuff you can rely on to automatically fail over to, you know, that you can utilize. So you need enough resources to do the healing. But secondly, you've got to strip out all centralized control. Nobody is in charge. 
Because to allow components to detect there's a failure and fix it, if you wait for the central commander to issue the new tables of forwarding, you know, what happens is a break between you and the central commander. Well, the answer is you're toast. You're not getting the message. You can't get the new config. You can't fix it, which is where the telephone system falls or fell flat on its face and where the routing system of the internet had this astonishing ability to go, well, link to A is down. Hey, can anyone else get me to A? And the answer is, well, if someone else can, I'll use you. So this idea of no one's in control, no one's issuing instructions, each of the elements in the routed internet operate with autonomy. They optimize themselves using this algorithm and everyone uses the same algorithm, but no one is in charge is a key factor. So we've got this sort of principle down in the moving packets around of you're dealing with not quite abundance, but certainly planned resilience. There's enough out there that there's always a B plan. Now, it doesn't need to be reserved. What do you mean by reserved? Half of the telephone network was never used all of the time. When they had an A circuit and a B circuit, they kept the B circuit idle, vacant. So when the A circuit dropped out, the B circuit could naturally, you know, it's kind of, well, it's stupid. Everything costs double. And they did. When you bought a circuit, you bought backup. It's kind of, gee, thanks for that. How much am I paying? Oh, you're paying twice the amount. Why? Well, no one else can use your backup, Jeff. But on the internet, because of this autonomy system and adaptation, oddly enough, you can use the backup and many folk can use the backup at the same time. And there was this almost blinding moment when a lot of us were building internets in the early days and we kept on ordering circuits from A to B and wondering why they're costing us so much. And they said, oh, it's because backup. Can I order a circuit without backup? Well, yeah, but you'd be dumb. Just leave it with me. I've got routers. I've got a routing protocol. I want a circuit without backup. Ooh, okay. Everyone started cotton on, I imagine. Well, lots of circuits with backup started to get built, and they're all half the price. And um, we used our own backup system. Now, all these people who decided that the best way to do this A plus B is to build a big ring because they basically connected everything with this large ring. And the answer was, well, again, really expensive, really dumb. Because while it's really good for dumb systems, when you have an adaptive routing topology, when you have a protocol that can heal, as long as you have enough alternate paths, and they can be active, it's okay. You can fail over and it just works. So we learned this, or at least we first started appreciating it, back in 1962. So this is not a new thought. And when we thought about packet networking, not virtual circuits, and when we thought about this idea of learning state, we started to think about this idea of resilient networking, even when individual components were nowhere near as reliable. It just never failed because the system was able to self-heal. We used that in other places and many places because it was kind of cute. The domain name system is another fascinatingly good example. Um, if you've ever looked hard at how many uh, recursive resolvers have you been sort of supplied with from your ISP, why are there two? Generally, people get two, sometimes three, but normally two. It's sort of, well, the first one doesn't work. But how do I know the first one's not working? Well, if it's not answering, go and use the other. 
And so in the DNS, there's this heap of resiliency because when I set up a name and have some authoritative servers, I don't set it up on one machine unless I'm really stupid. I set it up on a number of machines, make one the master and make all the others what we call, oh, in today's speak, I'm not sure I'm allowed to use the word slave, um, make them dependent um, alternate servers that load their copy from the master regularly, slaves, who serve the data as well. And so if someone can't reach the primary source, they can go to the secondary sources and get the same data. And we've engineered this resilience and these alternate paths all over the internet. So what should happen, of course, is that if something happens, either the server goes down or the path goes down or, heaven forbid, even a routing incident, you're not offline. There's always the plan B that's kind of sitting there. And so we've seen in routing, the system self-heals. In the domain name system, we load it up with resiliency. You go, well, isn't that expensive? Like the telephone system, won't it cost twice as much? Well, not really. Why not? Because interestingly, computers are cheap. These services are now dirt cheap. We're actually living in a world of abundance in certainly computing and storage. And so the marginal cost of having three servers rather than one is really very low. And the marginal gain is enormous because you're never offline if you do it right. And so engineering this kind of resilience of building a stable service on top of potentially unreliable components is part and parcel of what we do. This, is, this has become a bit standardised, hasn't it? I mean, the, the template's already been set uh, on how you develop the internet and most companies have followed that template. But in the case of Facebook, that hasn't been the case. Well, this is then where, where we start to look at what's going on again. Don't forget, there's a certain amount of expertise and engineering required. And as more and more parts of our world become online, you know, enter this, this stage and start to mount their own service, even my local corner shop, um, local town administration and so on. Now, not everyone has geeks locked up in the basement doing their work for them. and. Quite frankly, you wouldn't expect that. And so, like all of these, we outsourced and, and had a, a small number of companies who basically said, look, we can do this for you. So when I look at my online bank and actually look at who runs it, um, I seem to be a customer of the Grand Bank of Akamai, I guess, or the Grand Bank of some other basic wholesaling provider because we've concentrated the points of expertise and all this knowledge about how to make incredibly reliable service is kind of bottled up inside a smaller number of providers. And, you know, out at the end in retail land, be it my bank, be it my shop, be it my local town administration, they feel happy about relying on the, the services of someone who does that for a living and say, well, you guys know what you're doing. Here's our data. You know, you serve our data reliably. And that's good until those folk have their own oops. We saw outages from both Fastly and Akamai uh, July and August, I think they happened. And their impact, while not at $3 billion, was certainly big. Fastly had an outage that was localised in parts of the world, but severe when it happened. Why? Because lots of people use Fastly. 
Similarly, Akamai have had their outages recently. And again, lots of people use Akamai. And so when bits of their network disappear, people notice. You go, but it's not meant to disappear. Well, true, but there are some bits we just can't seem to make truly resilient. This is the problem of what uh, you've talked about in your blog posts and uh, others have it in terms of centralization and uh, causing these single points of failure, I guess. Um, so this brings us to Facebook. Well, not quite, because Fastly themselves operate resilient infrastructure. So do Akamai, you know, so does Google, so does Cloudflare. If you look at these maps, you know, Amazon's data centers, they're all over the world. And so, you know, the real answer is, well, if you're all over the world and the local server located in, in, in Grong Grong out there in central New South Wales dies, well, surely the one in Burrumbuttock will take over, you know. Surely, surely to God you, you've sort of engineered that. And the answer is generally, well, yes, this shouldn't happen. So, again, you get into the, one of these things about what are we trying to do and why, and why despite all this supposed resilience and and supposed redundancy, we still can have critical points of acute failure. And this gets us down into, I suppose, two areas, unavoidable bottlenecks, unavoidable vulnerabilities, and secondly, the issue of complex systems and emergent behaviour. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the bottlenecks first. Okay. So... All the DNS comes from one root. One. One. And if I can make that root inaccessible to you, over the fullness of time when all the caches expire, there is no internet for you because there's no domain names for you because there's only one root. What's the likelihood of that happening, though? Well, we thought about this and we thought about it a lot. And so these days, the root zone, which is a critical point, is served by 12 different operating entities, Verisign, ISC, some US government associated ones in the military, in a wide one run all over the world. And not only that, they've scattered their servers, each of them, all over the world. So instead of thinking, well, that's just one machine, <laughs> hopefully it's a safe machine somewhere, there are now around, geez, 4,000, 5,000 machines all serving that data. And interestingly, sort of no matter where you are on the internet, there's probably one that's up because we have never really, I mean, you can isolate yourself from the internet, go and cut the wire. But if you are on the internet, you have the root service. You just do. Because as long as you're kind of connected, there's a root near you. And normally that's true for no matter where you are on the globe. So sometimes these bottlenecks, we just engineer around it by just adding more and more and more and more until we go, well, is that enough? Well, we can always add some more. So, yes, we do that quite deliberately. Google.com is served from hundreds of machines all over the world. Your search is so fast because of resilience, all that kind of stuff. That's great. So this almost makes the question even more, why did Fastly have an outage? Why did Akamai have an outage? What about Facebook? If you've got all this machinery, and it's all serving, you know, much the same data, then why aren't you there today, Facebook? Knock, knock, you know, what's going on? So this brings us to complexity, I imagine. Well, it does, because we're actually not just trying to kill one problem. 
we're trying to do almost three problems at once. The first thing is that people want fast. And if some of you are old enough to remember the days of the dial-up internet, it was slow for two reasons. One, dial-up modems were just slow. I might, you know, slow. But your packets went around the world. Facebook at the time was running three servers, you know, three in the US. If you weren't in the US, Facebook took a while to, while to get there from everywhere else. And the issue about slow is the only way I can make it fast is to alter the speed of light. Can't do that. Bring everyone to live near a data center. Can't do that. Make lots of little data centers and bring them near you. Can do that. Can do that. Did do that. And since about the year 2000, We've been building shopping malls of the internet all over the internet at, you know, a, a pace that's so fast, you know, we've stretched the resilience and ability of the builders of these, these data centers. We're building out like crazy. Now, building stuff out like that and replicating this data works in a number of ways. One, it's really quick because rather than your packets traveling around the world, they travel across the town normally. It's not for every part of the world, but for most of the, you know, populous, richer parts of the world, the data center is very close by. Close is quick. Secondly, it's cheap. Because a bit like, I suppose, hiring a car where you pay by the mile or by the kilometer, the further you move the packet, the greater the cost. Now, you may not be being charged it, but, you know, it costs a billion bucks to build an undersea cable between two continents. The bankers aren't going to say, well, have a great life. We don't need the money back, you know. Thanks. It was a pleasure to help. You know, this stuff costs. And so typically, if you can strip those costs out by moving the service closer to the serve, customer and producer get closer, you're stripping cost out. So faster, cheaper. Now, the next thing is speed. If you're trying to make intercontinental or multi-continent sessions go fast, it takes some time for all these automatic protocols to kind of ramp up speed. And it's difficult to get speed. But as anyone's noticed on their local home network, once you install, you know, a gigabit switch, and they're pretty cheap these days, the stuff at home just flies. Why is that? Because the distance between your computers is down in the milliseconds. And these same protocols that struggle when the delay is, you know, half a second, when the delay is a thousandth of that go, Easy, just watch me take over, Bzzz, done. And so bringing things closer makes it cheaper, makes it faster, and allows you to make it bigger. So now I've got a different problem, and this is where Facebook comes in. I've got this problem of trying to make sure that all of these front ends, the service delivery points, are synchronized that it doesn't matter if I jump on a plane and go somewhere else and access Facebook. It's my Facebook. It's my profile. It's me. And so somehow all of those front ends need to be adaptive enough to hand me my data, my profile, my environment incredibly quickly, no matter where I am. Now, to make all that work actually makes a layer of complexity, not at the IP layer. It's not about routing. It's not even about the basic transport protocols. It's this engineering of data at almost an application layer. And it's not like the DNS, which is a distributed database. 
It's a replicated distributed database. And the real problem is trying to sync everything up. Now, we have big computers. We know how to do this, but it's hideously complex. I use the word complex quite deliberately because there's a difference between complex and complicated. To my mind, complicated is there's a lot of detail. It'll take you some time, but it is understandable. It's just complicated. Once you understand those interdependencies, everything is predictable. Complex hides something really quite, I don't know, amazing in some ways. Truly complex systems exhibit what we call emergent behavior. Um, You and I as humans are complex, and we are capable of surprising our fellow humans all the time. And part of this is actually emergent behavior. It's not programmed in. It's an artifact of highly complex series of interactions of the components that produce a behavior that you never, ever thought about before, and in fact, never planned for. It wasn't something you programmed in. It was just a behavior of the system that's almost impossible to simulate in advance, impossible to figure that out. And so now we're starting to zero in on these massive outages of these distributed database folk who are running these huge systems across multiple data centers and Facebook, Google, Amazon, Fastly, Akamai all do this. There's no standards. There's no book. There's no software. They've all done it in various different ways. And because their systems are constantly growing, constantly evolving, constantly trying to achieve new price points in being cheap but big and secure and so on, they're constantly reconfiguring them. Now, when I worked in, in one of in an ISP, we had a freeze across the holiday period. Everyone does. And over that holiday period, customers enjoyed the most stable service all year because we weren't playing. And because we weren't playing with it, it was really stable. And, you know, the same thing happens on all of these platforms, that when you start doing config changes, you're pushing the system into places and spaces it may not have been before. And as Facebook uh, admitted, obliquely, because they really were a bit economical with with the details, uh, but they ran into places where their backbone got driven into a state where the data centres and the backbone didn't believe each other. The backbone wasn't connecting the data centres to each other. And at that point, the oops emerged. Because once you'd broken that and you couldn't rely on our friend BGP to fix it all up because it just wasn't working, then all of a sudden the data centres were running in a weirdly disconnected mode. And that meant the DNS was weirdly disconnected And because the DNS was running on relatively low cache timers, and they were pretty quick, because they wanted the DNS to adapt, right? But as soon as you want adaptability, you throw out cacheability. And so the thing that normally saves your bacon, look, it doesn't matter if I'm not available, all you systems that have cached my information, just keep on serving it until I come back. I'm working, you know. I've got an hour or two, you know. Great. No, you're not. You've got a couple of seconds. Jeez. Oops. As soon as that goes, you're lost. You're gone and you're locked out and all of a sudden now you're back at zero trying to build it all back together. So what can we learn from this outage, Jeff? Uh, You've mentioned the need for resilience and how having low TTL times has a negative effect on cache being able to weather the storm. 
Um, what else can network operators learn from this particular outage? Well, you know, th- there's two kinds of, of meta pieces to learn, and oddly enough, they're contradictory. So let's take the mechanical engineering approach, the thing that says this is a deterministic system, things failed, we will fix things up the way they failed. So, okay, we will not put all of the name servers inside a small number of routes inside a small number of physical locations. We will outsource at least some sources of information for our DNS so that no matter what happens to us, the name will still work. We will effectively make sure that our routing system is itself decentralized and not relying on a single point of control. We will effectively push out these systems so that there is a certain degree of autonomy of the way they operate and not rely on critical single installation points. So one by one, we attack the issues. Longer TTL times, changes take time, but if we really have the grand whoopsie, there's more time up our sleeve to fix it before anyone notices because things are cached. Yay. You know, we get rid of the centrality in routing, in the routing configs and so on, to actually make them more autonomous. We might even split Facebook up into multiple ISs if you're feeling brave, although I'm not sure that's a good thing. Um, You could do all that. And think about these systems as deterministic. Your brain doesn't work like that. People who do neuro, uh, what's the word? They, they look at brain systems. They actually have figured out that consciousness is a weird byproduct of chaos, that most of the synaptic connections are just flipping. And this constant bubble of information is not heavily orchestrated. It's just adequately orchestrated that we have coherent thoughts from time to time. And this sort of neural network approach leads to a different way of thinking about how to do this degree of complexity, which is embrace it. Increase the levels of just complete unmanaged autonomy and let the systems figure out where their peers are. Let each of the elements go figure. It's a brave thought because we've had almost no experience in this. And no one's ever tried to build a system with 3 billion customers working on the basic principles of of chaos theory and uncertainty as the driving principles. There is one thought about all this, that if it worked, God, it'd be cheap. It'd be easy because you just add stuff in and let it self-configure. You could remove stuff and let it self-heal. You wouldn't need all this phenomenal orchestration And maybe the internet has actually been taken over by the phone company engineers and we weren't looking. That maybe we're recreating those, you know, vast, incredibly fragile artifacts where every nut, every bolt, every element has to be engineered to consistency for the system to run reliably. And this whole dream of Paul Barron that we could actually make a reliable system out of completely unreliable components, if we allowed enough autonomy, maybe we're just not brave enough anymore to follow that thought and see where it leads. Because the grand scheme of the internet was you're paying too much for your phone. You're paying too much for your comms. Computers can make this so much cheaper, so much better. But part of the deal was you actually had to push functionality across into these semi-autonomous systems. And you actually had to rely on, dare I say it, 
chaos theory to bail you out. And no one's brave enough to do that these days. Nobody. And so while the thought is still an amazingly interesting thought, the number of folk who are willing to experiment with truly chaotic, self-managing systems that self-adapt to changes, whether it's changes in service points, up and down, changes in topology, changes in load, but self-adapt, we're not quite there. But if we ever want the big nirvana, you know, if we can build self-driving cars, and we sort of can, why can't we build self-driving networks? Who needs these network engineers anyway? Why are we victims of, of managed config changes anyway? Why are we building vulnerabilities into these massive systems? Why are we over-engineering when the result is actually a more vulnerable, more fragile, and more expensive service? Because if we had the freedom to experiment, the mental freedom to experiment, I think we'd get driven to a different place. We get driven to a place that actually looks at how can we make systems that realistically the elements just adapt and the system itself behaves in remarkably complex ways but ceases to have these critical points of engineered vulnerability that we seem to be building today. It's a fascinating thought. Um, it is a fascinating thought into the evolution of the internet and with any evolution or with any development, you're going to come across these oopses that Facebook and other massive networks have experienced. And hopefully you learn from them and share this with others, which in essence is what we're trying to do in this podcast. So we can develop our collective knowledge of not only how to run and make the internet resilient, but how to evolve it to be even right. more efficient and intelligent. There's kind of two points of learning. One is the specifics about how do you do the DNS? How do you organize these elements? How do you do your BGP? How do you do this? You know, how do you engineer the system so that config changes? How do you actually test this? Do you constantly bring things down and test the failover and so on? That's one approach. And certainly, the more we talk about why things fail as an industry, the more we can understand what and why are common failure modes. And we can engineer more resilience in that respect. But at the same time, don't think the internet's a solved research problem. Don't think that, you know, this is done. It, we've only just begun. Because once we start to understand how we can make what I'd truly call intelligent systems from deterministic components, because that's all humans are, all the components are actually quite robotic, synapses on off, up comes a remarkably creative and imaginative end result. If we start to go down that path in research, I suspect there are some real gems about how to make highly resilient, highly flexible, and phenomenally inexpensive systems that adapt to the way they're being used and the resources they have at hand. And that's worth thinking about and not forgetting about. And that's the research component of what we do all the time. Try and imagine around the engineering and say, how can we do this in ways that the engineering doesn't lead you to, but the end result might be brilliant. I will leave you with that thought, Robbie, and thank you very much. <laughs> now, that's a great final thought and final plug for the show, Jeff. 
And hopefully we will discuss these futuristic concepts such as self-healing networks further with the internet research and measurement community. Jeff, it's been fantastic talking. Thanks indeed. And uh, whoever's been listening, thank you for hanging on and listening. It's been a pleasure. Indeed, it has been a pleasure. And we hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please do subscribe and tell your colleagues about it. As mentioned at the start, we plan on scheduling these episodes each fortnight. If we get plenty of interest, we may look into making it weekly. In this respect, do let us know what you think of the show. And if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apenic.net or our Apenic social media channels. Until next time.